0: 522-1442 the pregnancy care center of rincon is seeking a ministry-minded registered nurse for a part-time position as nurse manager perhaps you're an rn looking for a way to use your knowledge and skills in a ministry setting if so they'd love to talk to you contact anna at 912-826-1133 for more details the light 88.7 fm wagp beaufort hilton head island savannah a ministry of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, on the web at wagp.net. This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Brogi is the Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area. Call toll free, 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Uh, we're so glad that you can be here with us. And if you have a particular question that you would like to ask today, we would uh, honor your question. All you have to do is pick up and uh, call us. The number locally is 525-1859. Uh, the toll-free number is 877-WAGP980. Um, so if uh, you call, you can remain anonymous, or you can dictate your question, however you'd like to give it to us.
0: Indeed, Pastor, and um, we've got the phone lines wide open right now. You can give us a call at, uh, as Pastor Brogy said, 525-1859, uh, toll free 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Um, all right, uh, we're going to go to our... Um, messages that we've had here for the last several uh days but uh, it is indeed good to be back pastor uh, we've been uh gone away for the last uh oh gosh a few weeks with the holidays and yes, all. yes
1: yes it is great to be back and uh rick uh again uh as people call today they can dictate their uh, questions or they can email them directly here into the studio and that email address if you'd like to give it to us is a uh, tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net
0: and of course we're very very excited about the uh, upcoming men's wildlife supper that's going to be taking place on the 24th of this uh, month and uh, uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about that, but we have a live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. I just have uh, a question about
1: uh, some of the people in the Bible that didn't end well, a uh, lot and maybe Samson, some of those guys that didn't have salvation like we have it.
0: Um, I just really want to know, did they did
1: they have made it to heaven? I mean, how how? How, do, how does that work? <laughs> oh, no, that's a great question. Uh, Lot, yes, did go to heaven. Uh, Lot is described in the New Testament as a righteous man. Uh, Peter describes him, uh, describes him in that fashion in his second letter. So we know Lot is a believer. He's in heaven. He, he did something very foolish, very evil. But nonetheless, uh, he knew the Lord Jesus uh, in terms of a prefigured way. He, he believed in the coming of Messiah. He didn't know Messiah's name would be Jesus, but he knew indeed that Messiah would come and someday die for his sin. And so all saints in the old Testament are saved the exact same way that people are saved today. There's only one way of salvation and that's through Christ. And, uh, through Messiah, they looked forward. And so anyone in the old Testament who met the Lord met him by grace And Lot was no exception. He was an individual who uh, put his trust in the Lord God. His life certainly was deficient, uh, as was Samson. But we could come into the New Testament and also find uh, believers who knew the Lord, but whose lives were deficient. I mentioned this on Sunday, uh, Demas, who loved this present world. And so while he was Paul's fellow worker, as he's described in both uh, the book of Colossians and Philemon, uh, or Philippians, he was nonetheless, um, he, 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 he turned away there towards uh, the end of his life. Uh, whether he came back, we don't know. Paul is just commenting on his current state uh, as he writes his final will and testament. So there are many Christians who don't finish well. They go to heaven because if we are truly saved, we are eternally secure. Even Alexander, who's mentioned in First um, Timothy chapter 1, uh, he was a believer, and the terms that are used to describe him are disciplinary terms, same term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of someone whom he threatens to deliver over to the evil one for the destruction of his body that his spirit or soul might be saved in the, in, in the at the return of Christ. And so uh, it's possible for a Christian to finish poorly and to go to heaven and to have regrets in heaven. It's in heaven that God wipes away our final tears. It's in heaven that we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for all that we do. And so, The judgment seat of Christ is a sobering time. It's not a place of punishment, but it is a place of evaluation when God uh, determines how he will reward us throughout all of eternity. But if someone is truly saved, they are secure and that was true for Old Testament saints, and it's certainly true for New Covenant saints as well.
0: All right, very good. We've got another question now that has been uh, emailed us. So No, but we do have a live caller. We always give uh, lo- preference to live callers, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Happy New Year
1: to you both. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for calling. We are having a technical difficulty here a moment ago, but I think we've got it cleared up. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, I was having a discussion
0: with someone about uh, predestination, and I was just thinking about this. God calls those who He has chosen, if I'm correct, and we are called to bring as many people to Christ as we possibly can by dictation of Christ that He told us to go out and, and make disciples of all people, all nations. So that leads me to believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Brogy, that there there will be some that even though... We go out and spread the gospel and try to, try to bring them to Christ that will never come, and some possibly will. Right. So there's... Yeah. Go no, no, I'm, go, go ahead.
1: I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, you're absolutely right. um, Broad is the road, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. And so certainly there are people who will come under the call of the gospel, but who will not respond. And Jesus taught this, uh, especially in that text of scripture uh, that deals with what we call the kingdom parables. It's all of Matthew 13. And one of those parables that is actually found in all three synoptic gospels is what we call typically the parable of the sower. And Jesus likens the preaching of the gospel to a man who goes out and he sows seed. And some of the seed you know, falls on different types of ground, rocky ground, thorny ground, and so forth. And... And some falls on good soil that represents true conversion. Uh, They hold fast the word. Uh, They bear fruit with perseverance. Uh, They're true, genuine believers, and as thus they are steadfast, they persevere in the faith. But no, there will be many people who will not respond to the gospel. That doesn't change my responsibility as a Christian to plead with them. They have a free will. Uh, I can't bring people into the kingdom. That's ultimately a work of God that he alone is able to accomplish by the Spirit, but he still uses human instruments in which to communicate his love and his grace and people's needs, need to, to, to repent and trust Jesus Christ as, as Lord and Savior. It's interesting in um, Acts 17, a passage that just comes to my mind, it's Paul's Sermon on Mars Hill, and uh, he does a phenomenal job of just taking the uh, current day idolatry And he turns it into an opportunity to share uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And when he's all done with that sermon, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, (laughs) We'll hear you again concerning this. Uh, So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. And so there you really find uh, three typical responses. Some people, when they hear the word, they just sneer. Uh, they mock, they laugh, they turn their back on the living God. that's not to say that they could never turn back. but as a man hardens his heart, uh, it doesn't get softer, it gets more calloused and uh, God is persistent, he is patient, he's long-suffering, he will pursue people but there does come a time when a person crosses a line uh, known only to God uh, where, they have made an eternal decision, and the parable of the sower, sower even indicates that in Luke the eighth chapter, when Jesus um, describes some who respond to the preaching of the word in such a way that the devil is given permission to come and snatch the seed, and then the uh, next statement is very sobering in Luke eight twelve, so that they may not believe and be saved. So some people will just sneer. Other individuals, when they hear the plan of salvation, they'll say, well, we're interested. We want to hear more about this, as these did on Mars Hill. We shall hear you again concerning this. But then some joined him and believed. Uh, not everyone, the first time they hear the message of salvation, responds, and that shouldn't encourage discourage us. There are people who, in the very first hearing of the gospel, will respond. And so the apostle, when he writes to the church at Thessalonica, he said, on the first hearing of the gospel, uh, you believed. Uh, The Bereans didn't initially believe when he came to them and shared that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They studied, they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. But it was not an immediate response. So you'll see all types uh, in the Bible in Many times when we go and share the plan of salvation with people, uh, there has already been a a process that has brought them to a point of harvest. Uh, Jesus said, no man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And so in the Bible, conversion is likened to that of physical birth. A seed is sown, there's a gestation period, and, and then birth takes place. And before a person is saved, a seed is sown, uh, God begins to work in the heart. He begins to draw the person to himself. And sometimes we meet a person right at harvest day. Uh, there are other people we're just sowing the seed with. And so when Jesus um, had the encounter with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, uh, his disciples would have actually probably crossed paths with her as she was walking towards the well and as they were going into town to buy food. In either case, um, She's converted, she goes back into the town, Uh, she bears testimony, the whole town comes, and Jesus makes this profound statement. He says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, uh, the case of the Samaritan village turning to Messiah, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So sometimes, as a believer, you enter into someone else's labor. There is always a process that has uh, precipitated a person's conversion. Uh, uh, It is true that at a moment in time, you are converted. You're not gradually converted, but there is a process that leads up to that conversion. It might be the prayer of a mother or a grandmother or a friend and people who have witnessed to them. And sometimes we just have the privilege to harvest uh, the fruit that has been going through that ripening process. So, um, yeah, don't be discouraged as you share Christ in this new year. Not everyone will respond, but there are people who indeed are going to respond if we are faithful. Now, I always tell people, if you sow just a little seed, you'll see just a little fruit. But if you are faithful to continually sow seed, some of the individuals that you are going to encounter as you seek to sow the gospel message have already been prepared and they are ready to be harvested. So one occasion, a lawyer came to Christ and uh, Jesus uh, asked him some questions and he responded properly. And Jesus said, you are very close to the kingdom of God. That statement in and of itself implies that some people are closer to conversion than others. And it's wonderful when God gives us that chance to uh, harvest the seed of that person who's right on the edge of the kingdom and we are able to welcome them in through faith in, in Jesus Christ. It's a great question, and um, let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free,
0: 877-924-7980. And you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. And uh, we actually have a live caller standing by now, so let's go to them. Uh, thank you for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line.
1: Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Um, I just uh, have a question, and I'm sure you've uh, heard Dr. Hagee, uh, Dr. Uh, John
0: Hagee, I guess, uh, talking about the, or his new book, The Four Blood
1: Moons, uh, in in, co- in conjunction with the Jewish uh, ho- holidays of Passover, Feast of Tabernacle, and the
0: solar eclipse. Uh, and I just wondered if... Uh, Doctor Brogy's opinion
1: on that, and and uh, where we need to go. If you would, if if it's okay, I'll just hang up and listen. Well, John Hagee is a he's a good brother in Christ, and he's a gospel preaching pastor. There are aspects of uh, his theology that I would not necessarily uh, agree with, but overall, you know, I would I would say he he's in line. He is egalitarian in his theology concerning women but lay that he has a certain charismatic bent to him in terms of uh, the sign gifts of the Bible, but putting all that aside in terms of his eschatology, his doctrine of the last days, I think he's correct. He holds to a pre-tribulational premillennial uh, theology. He believes that God is not done with the nation of Israel and indeed that God is going to use Israel. I would say that I wouldn't agree with him in certain um, certain ways in which he's approached the end of time it, It's easy to be, and I don't want to accuse him of being dramatic, but it is is easy to be dramatic. Being dramatic fills seats. it brings people in. And indeed, I would say a major emphasis of what he is teaching uh concerns bible prophecy that seems to be a major theme of his ministry and god may have called him to that though as a pastor we are all called to preach the whole council of scripture and maybe he does that on sunday nights or wednesday nights i don't know but the few times i've seen him it seems like the topic is habitually the return of the lord and that fills seats and and i would say though that that whole uh dimension of theology for the most part is being ignored today Uh, There was a time in the body of Christ, I think, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in this country where there was a healthier balance in reference to teaching the return of Christ. And we've become almost uh, agnostic uh, in our desire to hear about the return of Christ. And yet it is a major motivation that God gives in his word that pastors are to teach uh, that God's people would be ready and faithful in their service to Jesus Christ. Now, the blood moon prophecies that he describes, one, I do not think you can build a firm case from Scripture on them. Uh, his point is, is that there have been times in uh in human history when there have been blood moons and with those blood moons come dramatic changes that have taken place. And he sees this year as one of those years in which it will take place. Uh, I, I, I just would be very cautious about, um, putting an emphasis, uh, in, in to come to that kind of conclusion because it's not plainly taught in the scripture. If it were plainly taught then indeed, uh, God's people uh, would have been preaching this for a long time, and so it's a rather new position uh, where he's looking back over history and some of the examples that he has used. And not him uniquely, there are some other people who you know have as a major emphasis in their ministries, Bible prophecy. Well, they'll use the historical blood moon examples and try to build a case. But, you know, I could take some of the things that they use and say, well, actually, you know, it didn't happen exactly that way. But it sure makes it sound good and dramatic when you present it in that fashion. Um, Other aspects that he's associated with... um, that whole line of uh, end times doctrine or eschatology, eschatos is a Greek word for last things. And so eschatology is the doctrine of last things um, are true. Um, Certainly when you look at Israel's feasts, uh, there are different feasts that God gave in the old Testament and they picture the first and second coming of Christ. Uh, You have the, you know, the feast of of Passover, uh, the feast of first fruits, and the Feast of Pentecost that were all fulfilled at the first coming of Messiah. Uh, Christ died on, on Passover, not by accident. On the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he was in the grave. And uh, on the Feast of first fruits, he was raised from the dead. And on the Feast of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit came 50 days later. And so four of Israel's feasts were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. And it's not by accident that he died on Pentecost. He's buried on the day of unleavened bread. He rises from the dead on the day of first fruits where that single sheave would be brought to the Uh, priest along with a handful of grain and so the day Jesus rises from the dead he is the first ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body and then the Bible reminds us a handful of Old Testament saints that Matthew uniquely records who walked around the city of Jerusalem and then after his resurrection on the 50th day after his resurrection uh, Pentecost is fulfilled Uh, in terms of the second coming There are still some of Israel's feasts that I do believe we will see fulfilled. Um, There's, um, you know, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, uh, and there's the Feast of Trumpets. First Trumpets, then Tabernacles. And uh, I think you could argue that Tabernacles is indeed a picture of the rapture of the church uh, excuse me, the Feast of Trumpets is a picture of the rapture of the church and then the Feast of uh, Tabernacles of Christ's millennial reign. Interestingly, on that occasion when Moses and Elijah meet the Lord up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, people sometimes you know, think Peter's stupid, but he was actually an incredibly bright man. Uh, there were some times when he obviously put his foot in his mouth, but when he asked the question, Lord, maybe we should make some booths and worship. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about an Old Testament feast that Israel would uh, every year uh, commit themselves to where they would live in booths. And it was a coming picture of what Messiah is going to do of the millennial kingdom. And so there are aspects of what John Hagee says that are very true, and I would agree with. But I do think the Blood Moon's prophecy is very dramatic. I, you know, I hope he's right. I hope you know something dramatic happens this year. That would be wonderful if the Lord so chooses. Um, but what if it doesn't? And at the end of the year, he is unable to give some explanation because he's hit this thing so very hard. And again, it gets people stirred up and. just like uh, a man who is not a true preacher of the Word of God, but owned a pseudo-Christian network of radio stations, and he just died a few months ago. But, you know, he said that uh, Jesus was going to come back a a year or so ago, and he had millions and millions of people stirred up, and some who were true Christians who who followed this guy. And uh, one brother in our church told me how his his earthly brother, uh, his, in his own family sold all his possessions and was prepared for the, you know, the return of the Lord and that it was going to happen. And the man had a date and everything else. And he's, he's done this before, but now he's dead. So I guess he won't do it again. Um, but sometimes, you know, people, uh, love to hear that stuff and it gets them all worked up. And again, it fills seats and it funds ministries, but very often in the end, it makes us look very foolish And so if this uh, four blood moon prophecy was so crystal clear in the word of God, you'd have, you know, myself and other, you know, mainline, uh, solid evangelicals preaching it, but it's not, it's a stretch. And some of the, uh, interpretations that they've had of other times in history, when these events have taken place is a stretch. And I think it's a stretch today. So anyway, but I say all that to say I'm thankful that John Hagee is a brother in Christ and he's preaching the gospel and people are finding the Lord Jesus as Savior. And so I thank God for that. Let's go to the next question. That's a great question.
0: All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at We had a caller who dictated their question Uh, They say they know prayer is very important, but this listener would like to know if there's a difference between praying when we're kneeling or lying prostrate or just standing. If so, should we as individuals or as a congregation on Wednesday night prayer services kneel when praying?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, You know, spirituality isn't always measured by the posture of the body, though it certainly could be. Uh, Jesus is standing and praying on one occasion. Uh, On another occasion, he's on his face. On another occasion, he's on his knees. So I think very often being on your knees is a posture of humility. It doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be be an illustration of just religiosity. Uh, I went to a church growing up where in every service we pulled down the kneelers and we uh, kneeled on the thing and we did it out of habit. And it wasn't really an act of humility for me anyway. I wasn't even converted. It was just an act of religiosity. And so with that said, um, I think there should be times when God's people literally physically actually get on their knees or on their face before God in humility as they pour their hearts out to him. But That's not to say that a person is not in humility when they're standing because Jesus prayed standing with raised hands and there was never a time ever when he was not a certain Uh, an absolutely perfect expression of of humility. Um, So what God ultimately looks at is the heart, though the heart can reflect the posture of the body, just like the heart can reflect the dress of a body. So uh, the way a woman dresses can reflect what's going on in her heart. If she dresses seductively, then she may be indeed expressing a seductive heart. But I would say to anyone listening that if you never, ever find yourself on your knees, uh, that's probably not a good thing. Um, Again, uh, there is humility, and God honors humility. And there is something about literally, physically, actually getting on your knees that is very humbling. And God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Anyway, I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, very good. This person
0: actually called in and uh, left this message a while back. Uh, They would like to know, are the Canaanites descendants of Cain? And uh, also, who are the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites uh, descendants of?
1: Well, that's a good question. In the broadest sense of the word, uh, the term Canaanite is used to describe those people who inhabit the land of Canaan. Uh, the land of Canaan is uh, what today we call Israel. It was a promised land. Certainly the borders that Israel shares today are, was not the full expression of what we call the land of Canaan. But it still nonetheless was a picture of what God had for his people. They were going to go in and they were to conquer the Canaanites. And so in the broadest sense, indeed, uh, the land of Canaan is a picture of Israel. It's a picture of the land that they were to go in and to conquer. Um, Canaan, if you remember, uh, not uh, he's not describing those who were from Cain's line. All the people who were in Cain's line, remember Cain and Abel, they were destroyed in the great flood. But Canaan was the fourth son listed of Ham. Uh, a few years ago, I did a Um, study of the book of Genesis more than a few years ago, probably 10 years ago. And we went through every chapter in Genesis. And when we came to the uh, table of the nations, it seemed like filler in the Bible. But as we walked through it, uh, I reminded our people, I said, this is actually a chapter. As you study the Bible, you'll find yourself coming back to it because it opens up. A number of passages. So even when you're in the book of Revelation, you find yourself coming back to uh, the table of nations. And so uh, as you read through that, you discover that uh, Ham had some different children. And uh, the fourth son that's listed uh, concerning Ham in Genesis 9 and 10, he becomes the progenitor of the 11 tribes uh, that occupy Uh, what is called the land of Canaan. Within that, there is a family uh, that is, or particular group of people that are called Canaanites. But in the broadest sense, you could call the Hivites and the Hittites and all those people Canaanites as well because they occupy the land. So sometimes it's used in a specific sense and sometimes in a broader sense. Um, Just like uh, we were recently in the book of Daniel and we looked at the term Chaldean, And sometimes in a specific sense, it refers to actually a certain profession of people, uh, namely the Magi or the wise men that would have been alive in in Daniel's day. Uh, But then uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army is uh, described uh, with the same term, the the army of the Chaldeans. In Jeremiah, I think it's the 50th chapter. Uh, So there it's being used in the broad sense. And so words find their meaning in context, just like in English. You know, when you speak of a trunk, are you speaking what's at the bottom of the tree, what's in front of an elephant, or what's behind the car? Well, it all depends on context. Uh, A sailor's trunk is different from an elephant's trunk, and so forth. And so context gives meaning to words, and the word Canaanite can refer to a specific group of people within the promised land or it can be used to describe all of the different tribes in the promised land and context will tell you. Good question. Appreciate that. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. 525-1859 toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at as has this listener from Okatee. She writes Someone told me that they were praying for me because they feared that when I die, Christ will examine my life and say that He cannot let me into heaven because I have judged too much. He based this on Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. I tried to explain that this would mean salvation was based on works or sin, which it is not. This person also believes that judgment will be in private with no other people hearing. I tried to counter with what the Bible
1: says about every thought being made
0: known. Thank
1: you. Well, you know, certainly um, there are times when I will encounter an individual who will claim to know Christ, and in a very loving way, I might say to them, well, I can't ultimately read your heart. Only God can. But in your situation, the New Testament would give you very little assurance that you have been born again. Now, It is true, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged in Matthew 7. And if someone's interested and they want to study this further, I have a whole message that you can listen to. Uh, In fact, a whole series of messages when I I preached the Sermon on the Mount on one occasion. But a few verses later, he will say in verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you to pieces. Uh, that statement, in and of itself, uh, presupposes that there's a judgment that we make as to whether someone is, quote unquote, a dog of whom we are to withhold the gospel pearl. So there's some evaluation that has to be done. And even uh, in John's gospel, uh, in chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus will say, Judge. With righteous judgment. So there is a place to judge and there's a place w- when not to judge. And again, context is everything. And um, if someone wants to listen to my hour-long answer, then go to our Sermon on the Mount series and listen to the text that I preached on Matthew 7, 1 through 6. But for instance, I was witnessing recently to someone who had been living with this woman to whom he had not been married for the last five years. And he said, well, I'm going to heaven. And, you know, I uh, may not have much when I get there in terms of reward, but um, I've been saved and I was saved when I was 12. And and I don't think God has any problem me with me living with this woman because I love her. And I said, well, God does have a problem. You know, the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, Paul says, do not be deceived. And by the way, whenever he gives that kind of introduction to what he is about to say, and he does it on a few different occasions, he's saying that because he knows the tendency is that we can be deceived. Uh, people who are deceived don't know they're deceived, typically. When the people, a number of elderly people on Hilton Head a few years back were being given phone calls saying, you know, you've won a brand new, you know, $4,000 computer system and television. And all you need to do is give us your credit card number. It's yours. It's free. All you need to do is give us your credit card number to pay for this shipping and we'll send it right out to you. Some people, unfortunately, did just that. Uh, They were deceived, but they didn't know they were being deceived. So Paul says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse is a breath of fresh air and hope for anyone, any one of us. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God and so a person can fall into any any of these sins in fact the rest of the chapter goes on to describe that the corinthians had fallen into some of these sins but if this is a person's lifestyle if this is the way they live typically and they can live this way without meeting god in his divine discipline because those whom the lord loves he disciplines and if you're without discipline Hebrews 12 tells us you're not true children, but illegitimate. Uh, Just like a dad would discipline his own children, even so God the Father will discipline his if we've been born again and have in a spiritual sense been made a child of God. So there is a place for judgment. And so sometimes I will meet a person and I'll say, well, maybe you are saved, but If you are, indeed, you must be a very unhappy person because the Spirit of God within you is grieved. And while there is pleasure in sin for a season, it doesn't last. And two, if you really are saved, um, you would be under the discipline of God. And two, the Bible teaches if you really are saved and you can live in this kind of lifestyle without any repercussions, then maybe you really aren't saved. Um, and I would just remind them that the New Testament in such situations would give little assurance that they really have met the Lord. So Paul tells, Paul basically says the same thing in Ephesians 5 in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things. Because of what things? Because of what he has said in verse 5 of Ephesians 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Uh, Four or five days ago, um, public TV ran nationally, it was last Friday night, a uh, a program on churches across America uh, that embrace uh, homosexual members as being Fully within the will of God, and it was really interesting to watch that. I, I watched it with a sense of fascination because there were members within the church who said, "Oh, we we can't, we can't embrace this, and this is wrong." And these pastors would convince them that it really wasn't wrong. That we need to be an inclusive church, and we need to, you know, allow these people to you know, uh, come in as members of our church and is in good standing with God. And this is no different from being of a different, you know, race. And, uh, yes, it is different and it's much different. And God says it is different no matter what our government leaders or the president or the vice president or a number of congressmen and senators may be saying, God's word is crystal clear. And again, in Galatians 5, he says the deeds of the flesh are evident, gives a long list. And then he says that those who live like this or those who practice such things, my emphasis would be on practice, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then he will say a few verses later, very plainly, that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, I wanted to ask a question. Uh, I recently heard somebody who said they could prove Jesus did not have long hair because of an Old Testament scripture that I didn't catch that said it was shameful for a man to have hair like a woman's, yet he was called a Nazarene and wasn't supposed to have his haircut. Could you clarify that for me, please?
1: Well, there's a difference between a Nazarite and a Nazarene. Uh, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. He was from a place called Nazareth. A Nazarite, Nazareth means to separate, and it was a kind of vow that certain people would take uh, in their separation to the Lord. And so Jesus did not take a Nazarite Nazarite vow, as best we know, except you could say, I suppose, he has now, and that he said uh, at the Last Supper that he would never again drink from the fruit of the the cup, Uh, it doesn't say wine, but the fruit of the cup, until he drinks again with us in his kingdom and glory. So uh, a part of a Nazarite vow, for instance, not only dealt with hair, but it also dealt with drink, that you wouldn't drink any kind of fruit juice of any kind, fermented, unfermented of any kind. And Jesus clearly did not take that uh, vow. Now, the passage that you're referring to that your friend quoted as being in the um, Old Testament is actually in the New Testament and he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, judge for yourselves Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? The old English says, <laughs> excuse me, it is a shame to him. So um, one of the principles that is highlighted in this chapter of scripture is that when you look at a man and you look at a woman, there should be a distinguishable difference. Now, I'm not going to come and be the uh, hair police here and say, well, your hair is uh, too long or too short or, or whatever, but the general principle is that a woman, he says if she has her hair shown uh, and shaved, it's a dishonor to her. And what I find interesting very often uh, within, for instance, lesbianism, uh, There is just on the male, just like there is on the male side of homosexuality, uh, there's a quote-unquote male and female partner. And the female partner will often have extremely short hair. And she'll take on masculine qualities. And she rejects her femininity. And that's not a good thing to do. And some Christian women who are not doing that consciously, but in their ignorance, and they need to have their minds renewed and grow in Christ, Their hair should look feminine, however you can do that. And uh, in the same way with a man, it's a shame for a man to have long hair if you look at him and he looks like a woman. Now, hair lengths are often relative depending on the culture. And I think you can argue that uh, the first century culture, their hair was longer, probably more like a lot of people wore it in the 70s Uh, than it may be today in this decade but still there is to be a distinguishable difference Um, a woman's hair was in that day certainly much longer than it typically is found in our day but you ought to be able to look at a person from behind and know well that's a female or that's a male Uh, and I think that's the overarching principle and two we need to be patient and gentle and gracious with people who come into the church as new converts and give them an opportunity to grow. I once shared an illustration in our church when I was a new Christian. I was at a a Baptist church in Worcester, Massachusetts, and this friend came in who had very long hair. He had only been saved less than a month, and it's like he got a ringing up one side and down the next. And he he didn't know anything about hair length at that point. He came out of what we would have called back then a hippie background. And as he grew in Christ, God would have uh, dealt with his hair. But that was an issue of growth, not an issue of conversion. And we need to be patient with people and gentle with people and give them a chance to grow. We've had people come to our church and... I, I try to call everyone who ever visits our church. And over the years, I've heard a lot of interesting things. And I remember on one occasion, a woman who attended another church and they said her dress was improper and they didn't let her in. And she ended up coming to our church and she was one to Christ. And I remember the day she came down front and her dress was improper. Um, but as she grew in the Lord, her her dress length changed and uh, you know there was a little more coverage with time. That's a growth issue. So we need to be patient with people and help people. We need to teach the standard, but neither do we want to be legalistic where we shut people out of the kingdom unnecessarily. Anyway, I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one.
0: Well, while we are on a sartorial subject, uh, we did have a a listener, Bill, from Concord, New Hampshire, who would like to know, why do you suppose God had the Levites shave off all their hair in Numbers 8? He finishes by saying, all scripture is profitable, so what lesson can
1: we learn? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, In the book of Numbers, uh, it's a fascinating book. It's a book that deals with, among other things, the, uh, the tabernacle and its construction, it being set up and uh, how it was to be ordered. It, it deals with uh, the different tribes and how they were to be um, uh, situated in terms of the way they would camp around the uh, tabernacle. The tabernacle, of course, being the predecessor to the temple, it was that tent-like structure That they would uh, move around the desert and God would move with them. Uh, Now, the book of Numbers is a book that deals a lot with numbers, but remember the chapter, or excuse me, the the book titles in the Bible are not inspired by God, those are added. And so, in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, they have uh, different titles than we have in our English Bible. The title for the book of Numbers comes from a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that was done about 200 years before Christ. And so, for instance, our title of the first book of the Bible is uh, Genosios in Greek, in the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures or Genesis. And the word Genesis means beginning. In the Hebrew Bible, it's Barashit, and Barashit is the first word in the Bible. It means in the beginning. Uh, so again, when they had these scrolls and they were grabbing a scroll, it would be marked on the outside so they knew which scroll it was that they were uh, gathering. Uh, the, in the Hebrew Bible, the word that is used here is Nidbar, and it's the word for wilderness. In either case, they, they set up this structure, and it's fascinating to study. I, I've wanted for many years, I don't know if the Lord will let me to do it, before he takes me home, but I've always wanted to do a full-blown teaching on the tabernacle because the furniture as it is arranged is arranged in the shape of a cross and the tribes, as they are arranged, are also in the shape of a cross, which is fascinating in and of itself. And so the numbers that God gives in this book when you take them and you see where God positions them on the, on the west, the east, the north, or the south side of the tabernacle, and you take them percentage-wise in light of the 600,000 that are described, it, it forms a perfect cross. It's, it's an amazing study. Um, and, of course, one of those tribes was the Levites. Now, within the Levites, uh, those who are descendants of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, there were different families. And one of the families was uh, Aaron's family that Moses was in. And so there's the Aaronic Levites. All Levites are not of the family of Aaron. All who are of the family of Aaron are Levites. Nonetheless, those who are in Aaron's family play a special role in serving the Lord. And then the other Levites also play a role, but not in the actual tabernacle service, but they have other responsibilities that God has them to do, whether it's carrying the tabernacle. And and, and so even these uh, men had to be prepared in a special way. And so here in Numbers 8, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. And thus you shall do to them For their cleansing, sprinkle purifying water on them and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they shall be clean. And then a few verses later, uh, thus you shall separate the Levites among the sons of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. Then after that, the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting. So again, you've got Levites who serve in the tent and those who serve outside of the tent, but they're all set apart. And God wanted all of the Levites cleansed in a particular way in terms of their clothing, and right down to the hair of their body, they had to shave it. This is the initial act. This is not something that they always did, but in the initial cleansing. And again, the reason I brought up the information about the tabernacle and the way it is structured and arranged and even the way the people camped, and they camp under four banners, which is fascinating in and of itself. For instance, there's the, the banner of Judah, in which uh, Judah, that tribe, and some other tribes camp under, and Dan, and Reuben, and, uh, and Ephraim. And those four banners uh, picture the Lord Jesus Christ in and of itself, and you come to the Revelation, and you see the same thing, and you see the same picture in the Gospels. But there are types and illustrations all the way through Numbers Of what God is going to accomplish through Christ and so he by illustration and uh, typology he describes how they are cleansed in the same kind of language is used in the New Testament that were washed with blood were cleansed with water Uh, not literal water but it prefigures the work that God is has done for us in 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 Christ and so these people were cleansed because to minister, they had to be clean before the Lord. It's a physical cleansing uh, that God will ultimately accomplish in the new covenant spiritually. There's a physical shaving where their, um, their skin is like a newborn baby in the same way when we are spiritually regenerated by the Spirit who is illustrated with water in the New Testament. Um, we are born again. We're like new babes. We're babes in Christ. And God saves us and cleanses us and prepares us not to sit. But real ministry isn't just about dedication ceremonies, it's about doing the work. And so after the dedication, it was time for them to go and serve and to get busy. So God makes us new creatures in Christ so that we, like Levites, can be priests in the New Testament every believer is a priest. It's not just a select group of people as in the Old Testament, but every believer is a believer priest. We are members of what Peter calls a royal priesthood. Great question. I don't think we've ever had that one before. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. We had a fairly uh, new Christian uh, ask this question. Uh, He came to Christ as an adult and had already been married and divorced before he became a believer his first wife is remarried, and this man would like to know if you believe that he is now free to marry someone else.
1: Well, it's a good question, and good godly people debate on it. Uh, Certainly, if your wife had not remarried, the general consensus amongst evangelical Bible scholars would say, no, you don't have freedom at that point to remarry and there's a couple of passages that would be used and i and i I say that because there are someone came up to me on sunday after the service and he said you know my life my wife has left me can i can i move on and i said has she remarried and he said well no i said then no you shouldn't move on he said but we're already divorced i said it doesn't matter there's still a possibility for reconciliation And Paul teaches that in 1 Corinthians 7, and that teaching is totally consistent with what Jesus taught in the Gospels and what is taught in Romans 7, the first few verses of that chapter. Um, There he says, um, uh, To the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord. This is 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Uh, I give instructions, not I but the Lord. That's uh, in direct contrast to what he is going to say in just a moment, When he says, I say, and not the Lord, meaning this is not something that Jesus addressed, but I'm going to address it as an apostle on his behalf and with no less authority. But on this occasion, he says, "Um, plainly to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, meaning Jesus spoke on this. Where did he speak on it? In the Gospels, when he dealt with the issue of marriage and divorce, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, and there are times when a person maybe has to live under a separate roof, Uh, they have to leave. Uh, Maybe a woman goes home at night and her husband beats her up night after night after night and her body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and she needs to protect it and she needs to be under another roof. Or a man goes home and he just finds his wife habitually adulterous and he draws a line in the sand and he says, listen, you're, you're breaking the covenant. And so there are times to leave. If she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So he's very clear, very explicit. If you're going to leave, here's your option. Remain single or go back. And again, it's not over until someone remarries because as long as someone has not remarried, there is still a possibility for reconciliation. And it can happen. And it does happen on occasion where two people who are divorced to each other end up getting married back to each other. And sometimes we are impatient, and we want things fixed immediately. Now, your case is a little bit different. You're uh, describing uh, the fact that your wife has already been married. Well, we're out of time. I hear the music. But this is what I'm going to encourage this listener to do, to go and listen to my message on Romans 7, 1 through 4. I think that would be very helpful to you. Or in Matthew 19, 1 through 10, where in both of those teachings, I spend an hour, uh, I deal with the subject. I'd start with the, the message on Matthew 19. Uh, I think it's called Dads Who Keep Their Promises uh, and listen to that message, and that would be very helpful to you and give you a good, clear answer. Uh, it is definitely on this second issue uh, some different positions that people hold to, but you can at least hear how I understand it and weigh it for yourself before the Lord. While we're out of time, this is the month for the Men's Wildlife Supper. Hope you'll consider going and being a part of it. Go to cbcofbuford.org for details.